Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Mark Ballot, I'm really excited to be back here in your amazing apartment. Really? Okay, good. That's off to a good start. I'm glad you like it. There's a lot to look at here. There it is. is. It's like a little museum of, I don't know what, between fine art and then no art or something. It's a... I mean, I would say that it is definitely, I mean, this is a podcast, so people can't see it, but we will definitely share some images. I mean, it is unbelievable. Oh, thanks. I got this place. There's a picture on the wall here. The ceilings are 22 feet high. I came three times to look at it, to try and get it. And twice I just couldn't afford it and couldn't get it. And I had someone take a picture of me. It's on the wall there in front of it many years ago, decades ago. And I said, take a picture of me. That's where I'm going to live one day. Wow. I'm absolutely going to live there. And I came back until I could get it. And then finally I came in and I said, um, look, this is all the money I have. You can have it tomorrow. And actually I got it. So yeah, we have a great time here. It's a fantastic place. But oddly enough, while I was doing it, I was living in two little apartments on 22nd Street. And then I moved into the Gramercy Park Hotel before it was swanky. This is when it was a dump. <laughs> and I took a suite at the Gramercy Park Hotel and I bought this place and then started making it into my office and living space. And I started to run out of money. And I was working for Donna Karen at the time doing Incline. And I went to Donna. I said, am I doing your advertising next season? Because I was doing all Incline stuff. She said, well, I guess so. She wasn't even thinking about it. I said, well, can you pay me now <laughs> for next season? And she did. So I had the money to continue making this. I mean, I made the furniture. This was made on the roof, this table. All the furniture was made for my size in Long Island. I had everything kind of made for me. And I've had parties here with 300 people. I mean, it's a place that people know about. It was apparently one photographer came when I first moved in and told me that he knew this place when it was a reggae lounge or something. Oh, wow. Well, if these walls could talk, I'm sure the yeah, story but, would oh, be amazing. Scary. scary. But yeah. Well, let's talk about your career because you have had an incredible career as both an art director and a creative director. You're most famous for your work as the art director under Andy Warhol right. at Interview. Andy gave me my first job. I had won the Prix de Rome in architecture. I went to school in Rome. I finished college in Rome. I moved to London. And Wait, then, slow down a second. Oh, sorry. 
You need to explain to people how major it is, the prize that you won. Oh, the Prix de Rome? It was major. I won it for two years. You could get it for a year or two years. And I was living in London, and someone told me about this thing called the Prix de Rome, which I'd never heard about, even though I had been living in Rome, finishing school. So I applied for it. I took my uh, – it was an architecture series called Dream House, and it was architectural tales. It was tales of, a, of an architect who traveled the world – documenting places that no longer exist now. So his pictures, and they're all faked pictures, these are all things I invented. Um, some of them are around this house. He documented them, and it was called Architectural Tales, and it was tales of these buildings and environments that only exist because this architect took pictures of them, supposedly. So I had a camera with a macro lens, and I would make these models, these fantasy models, photograph them, and then... Um, tell a story about each thing. And I applied for the Prix de Rome. Suddenly, I, I'd been living in London. But you went to RISD, right? I went to RISD. I graduated RISD in Rome. So I, that's why I knew Rome. And then moved to London, where I met someone called Derek Jarman, who was a pivotal person in my life and probably many people's lives. He was a pretty famous filmmaker and artist. He's gone now. But he changed my life. You know, I was living, I had taken a little house in Islington with a couple of architecture teachers and students in London, one of whom I knew. And I said, let's just take this house. So we took a little house. You know, I couldn't get a job and no one wanted to hire an, you know, a conceptual architect to do anything. But wait, hold on. You were offered a solo show at the Whitney I was. Museum and you didn't do that. No, I did do it. You did do I it. I did do it because when I was living in London, I applied for the Prix de Rome when I was flown to New York. I was staying at my parents in Connecticut, and I got a phone call saying, uh, you know, because I went to, I had to show my work or have a meeting with I.M. Pei and all these heavy hitter architects. And I remember I thought I looked too young to get the Prix de Rome because I was 23, 22 or 23. So I remember I went and bought glasses, fake glasses. <laughs> So I would look older. I thought the black frame glasses would make me look did, like did more architectural. You? Huh? Did they believe you? Yeah, they believed I won it. They gave it to me. And then they called me in Connecticut. I said, well, I'm going back to London because I was working with a bunch of people. I was making seashell furniture off the high street in London. And they said, well, can you come back to New York? We want to talk to you about something else. And I said, what? And they said, we want to give you a one-man show at the Whitney called Dream Housing. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll stay for that. So I went back to New York, and they awarded me a show. And then I went back to London, and I packed up my stuff, and I rented a loft on Spring Street. I had half a floor. This is 1971. And I had half a floor for $60 a month. Those were the days. Those were the days, man. And you know who I rented it from? The gal who ended up, what's her name? She was so lovely. She was a painter. She won the Academy Award for Hurt Locker. Okay. The movie Hurt Locker. Okay. She was a painter in those days, and she wanted to move out to California and change her life, which she obviously did. Kathy Bigelow. Okay. Her name is. Oh, yeah. Major. 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 So when you were living in Rome, you met the writer Fran Leibowitz. Yes. I was with Fran yesterday, actually. So in 1975, Fran came to Rome to visit friends at the bottom of the Janicolo, and I was at the academy at the top of the Janicolo, and they called me up and said, would you meet Fran Leibowitz, this writer from New York, and we're busy, we're actually working, you're just making art, you know, so you have to free time for Fran, so she came up to the academy. <laughs> I love how they assumed that. They assumed I had nothing to do, and so I met Fran, and we became friends that day, 
And then when I came back to New York, finally, I remember we met at the Russian Tea Room. Tragically, the art director who was at interview was 24 years old at the time, and she got an aneurysm and died oh. at 24. Gosh. And then Fran called me and she said, go and talk to Andy to be the art director of interview. And I'd never had a job. So I said, well, I didn't know what you do. I'd gone, I've been hanging out at the factory because of Fran. And I've been you were drawing her little her. illustrations, not drawing, doing montages. For and her collages, column. For her column, which was called I Cover the Waterfront. Which is a great name. Great name. She did it for many years. I also typed her column every month for free. And then, um, so I went to the factory. I was living on Gramercy Park. So I went over to the factory and, you know, I saw Andy and I said, listen, can I be the art director of your magazine? And he said, yeah, okay. Were you scared to ask him that? Well, yeah, I, Fran had to talk me into it, just but she would have had to talk me into any job because I didn't know how to get a job, apparently. <laughs> so Andy said yes, Fred Hughes said yes, Bob Colicello said yes, and they all walked away from me, and I was sitting there going, oh, I'm, I'm the art director here now. And um, then Bob came back to the table and said, well, how would you make the magazine look? You're our art director. We haven't seen one thing you did. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll, let me make some phone calls. I'll figure it out. And that's what I did. I just made some phone calls. I talked to people. And then I had a vision of how I thought the magazine should look. And then I was there for 11 years until Andy died. I was in Hawaii doing a movie. They let me go out to do, because Andy was extremely cheap. I heard you were making $100 a week. There. $100 a week at interview. How did you pay your rent? I didn't. I didn't have to pay. Well, and my parents had given me a little bit of money, but they had said if I moved to New York from Europe, they wouldn't help me anymore. Why? They, just... they didn't want me to be in New York. They thought it was better for me to stay in Europe and not come to New York. They didn't like New York. <laughs> um, so they thought it was vulgar and cheap or something. I don't know. But anyway, so I did come back to New York and I had a little bit of money from them. And then Andy introduced me to, well, through a friend in Italy also, I got introduced to Mr. Armani and to Saint Laurent and to Lagerfeld and to Barney's. And they all hired me to start doing their ad campaigns. And then I ended up being a consultant for Express, and then I helped launch Nike Women. I was one of the people helping to launch, which was Nike Goddess at the time, and working for Ann Klein, which is probably my first account, and I started to design books and record covers. And then it just snowballed, you know. And I was doing a movie in Hawaii when Andy died, and I, I came back from Hawaii, um, not for the funeral, but for the in memorial service that they had. Incredible. So let's just take it back a little bit because it's so interesting. So he paid you $100 a week, but he also paid you in art. Well, he didn't pay me in art. It, they were gifts. So there's some <laughs> stuff I sold, but he gave me paintings at Christmas and on my birthday and that electric chair, those fish are his. There's did, a few paintings there. There's a Mao over there. And did you know at the time? No. Were you like, what am I doing with this? Like no, no, no. It wasn't what I, I, I liked it. I loved his art. But that piece there, that double fish. Yes. I used to have a lot of people working in the other, in the office. There's an office in back here. And one of the kids came in one day with all these tubes, those kind of cardboard tubes. And they, I said, just throw them out. I don't want those tubes. And they said, well, don't you think you should look in one to see if you have anything in there? I said, Give me one. And I opened it up and there was an Andy that had been in there for like 15 years Mark. that he gave it to me and rolled it up. And then there was a poinsettia painting that I sold 
but I was upstairs on the third floor one day and I saw dust in back of these books and I pulled out what was covered with dust and it was an old poinsettia painting that Auntie had given me for Christmas one year. Casual. So stuff was like just around. But I, anyway, I sold that stuff. Okay. You've said that he was cheap. So- not you, only me, many people have said. Okay, <laughs> fine. We're not blaming you, Mark. Oh. <laughs> but you've been quoted as saying he taught you to be creative on a shoestring budget. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it was easier to get somebody to work for me if I it was they're really working for Andy. So Andy had that amazing umbrella veneer effect that, you know, when I was calling a photographer and saying you get $100 no matter whether you fly to China or whether you do it in your basement, you get $100, all in, everything. They did it because they were, first of all, we ran the best pictures in the world. And um, I had the best photographers. You know, I started David LaChapelle. That's a David LaChapelle up there, that girl smiling. Wow. And started his career. And I mean, I had a no drop-off policy at interview. So on Wednesdays, I would see people from 11 to 1, I think one Wednesday. I'm no wondering. drop off meaning photographers had to present. Their they work. had to present their work because I wanted to get the vibe off the photographer, whoever he or she might be. So if you just drop the book off, you could pick it up because I wasn't opening it. I had to feel, did I want to work with this person? And and then we just started working with everybody. You know, um, After five months, I quit interview because I had to get a job and I went. <laughs> and make money. Make money. And I. Someone called me when I was living with this editor called Tina Bossidy on Gramercy Park and said, um, listen, there's an opening for art director at a place called Vogue Patterns oh. Catalog. And I went, I didn't know what Vogue Patterns was. I said, but it's as soon as they said job and money, <laughs> I said, let me go and see if I can do this. And Sign me up. So I went down there and their offices were on the corner of Spring and, and Sixth Avenue. And they were owned by American Can, which was a big corporation at that point. And this and, is Vogue um, patterns like the knitting? Yeah. Okay. Like, like how to knit sewing. something. No, sewing. No, that's there's Vogue knitting also. This Ugh. is Vogue patterns. Got it. Where they got like Armani's patterns and Versace and all these and amazing- And taught you how to do it yourself. And taught you how to do it yourself. It was a huge success. I went there. I got the job. I went up to the factory on 17th Street and I spoke to the managing editor. Andy was with the Shah of Iran- in Tehran at the time <laughs> with Fred. Of course. And I said, I'm, yeah, I think he was doing his portrait or something. So I said, um, I quit. Tell Andy, thank you very much. But, you know, oh, I so you try. quit remotely. No, no, I quit. Well, he was remotely. I yeah. didn't fly to Tehran right. to tell him. <laughs> and then that night, I was in my little apartment on 22nd Street, and it was Andy calling from Tehran to say, no, he wasn't letting me quit. They were going to work around me. And they would just make it work. You can have your new job. And so at lunchtime, on many lines of cocaine, <laughs> I would jump on my bicycle and bike up to the factory, do interview, then bike back to Vogue Patterns. And I didn't tell Vogue Patterns I kept my other job. They found out about it about two years later or something. Oh, my God. So And Vogue Patterns, we flew all over the world for Vogue Patterns. We were in Bali, we were in Tahiti, we were in Central America, we were in Europe. We just had carte blanche. So and you were I, living two career lives. Two career lives. So some of the photographers I was working with for Vogue Patterns were like Patrick de Marchelier and Arthur Elgord and Albert Watson and Bruce Weber. And and sometimes I would hold them over to do interview at night. So if we were <laughs> shooting Vogue Patterns, two for one sale. I'd say, stay there. You know, uh, Susan Sarandon is coming to... We're going to shoot on the street. And so that's what we did. 
until they found out. And once they found out, I said, listen, I said, it's obviously working. We've been doing this for two years. I'm like, I'm, I'm exhausted on my bicycle having to bike up in wind and rain and snow to get to the factory. So they said, okay, keep both jobs. And that's, that's how it worked amazing. out. Yeah, it was amazing. That's amazing. What was Andy like as a boss? Well, Andy wasn't my direct boss. It was really like uh, Robert Hayes or Gail Love. or But the factory is split into two parts. It always was. One was interview, one was the factory. And we just went back and forth all day long. But Andy was left me alone. He never, he only yelled at me once, well, twice. He yelled at me at a picture that I loved so much. It's on my wall there somewhere. We did, um, what's her name? She was so pretty. Nora Church, who was Norman Mailer's wife. And I had a dream of a galleon, a golden galleon going through the waves of an ocean. And the next day we were doing Nora and she had all this red hair. So I had all these extensions put on her hair and she was laying down. And then I went to a hobby shop and I made a galleon and I spray painted it gold and we put it in her hair. Carrie Warren, I think, did the hair, who was amazing. I think at that I think Carrie did there. And I shot it and I ran a double page. I was so thrilled with it that Nora Burns was there looking so beautiful with a ship coming out of her hair. And Andy hated the picture. And he hated it because we shot up Nora's nose. Oh, that's you a no-no. She's no. laying down mm-hmm. and it was and he said, Don't ever do that again. It makes women look like pigs. <laughs> And I never did it again. That is for damn sure I never did it again. I never did it again anywhere. You know, Andy was Andy. He was Andy for a reason. And he was always extremely good to me and left me alone. And he just, he wrote in the diaries that he was upset I was had to do all this other work. He wanted me to spend more time at the factory, but he wasn't willing to pay the money. It's amazing, like, because he could pay the money. Oh, easily. So, I mean, <laughs> That's to be that Andy cheap... Was cheap. To be that cheap, well, I guess he was having his cake and eating it too because you did work there. Yeah, not only myself, but everyone who was there was kind of amazing. I mean, everybody was, you know, since those days, almost all those people have gone on to have really kind of great careers in either writing, you know, in journalism. And I tried to pay it back, you know, by hiring people that I believed in right away. Mm Mm-hmm to help their careers. So I I learned that from a number of times when I first came to New York trying to get a job and couldn't do it. I remembered who was good to me. Mm -hmm. And not just good to me because they gave me a job, but good to me because they listened to what I had to say and they were cool with me. And the people who were just dismissed me, and so I dismissed them later on. Well, that's a perfect segue because you've been quoted as saying that listening is the key to producing great work. Why do you think listening is so critical? Uh, you know, I think I don't know where that where you got that from, but it's true. I did my research. Oh Mark. wow, very yes. cool. I think listening to people. I love the way people speak. I love the intonation in their voice. I listen to the cadence in their voice. And I listen to what people have to say. I think it's so important for someone not only to listen and then you have to deliver on what you say, basically. So I have people coming here all the time, coming here to say hello and to hang out and to exchange ideas. And I'm sure people are here two or three times a week. So it's almost like this is like the factory. Oh, no, hardly, honey. I wouldn't say that. (laughs) I would not say that. I would just say it's my loft, and I I love to have people come over. I love to hear what they're doing and not rest on anyone's laurels. I mean, I'm starting to work in augmented reality, as you know. So you move on. You come up with the next thing. And uh, 
I think it's it's exciting. I think every time is exciting. A lot of people are very negative about now saying, oh my God, this is, yeah, there are negative things. There were negative things back in the 70s and 80s also. Well, you bring up a good point because, you know, the magazine business has changed so drastically since the time you worked at Interview. I mean, do you think, I mean, as an expert in creative, like, do you like anything out there these days? Like, is anything- Oh, there's so many people. I'm constantly on Instagram, you know, screenshotting stuff, putting them in files, keeping tabs on who's doing great work, photographers, you know, people working in, in video and all kinds of formats. There's a lot of exciting stuff going. It's just not necessarily, and it is in some magazines. You can always find great work in everything, basically. Probably I don't look at magazines much anymore. Mm-hmm. I just don't. Yeah. I think um, that's generally the issue. Yeah. I mean, if someone is doing something and they say, oh, they got uh, Esquire did an article on them, I never think the magazine. I always think online. I hope you're, it's online because – the magazine, 12 people see it, and online, a million yeah. people see it. And it's so it. funny because, you know, back in my PR days with Donna, I mean, if someone said, oh, we're going to put it online, we were like, what? It needs to be in the magazine. Like, that was like the stepchild. Like, you would rather die than be online. Like, you had to be in print. So it's just crazy how the world has evolved. But take us through a little bit. You've had some of the biggest clients in the world as far as designers, like people you've produced campaigns for. Some of them competitors. How did you manage? You told a great story the last time I was here. I would love for you to share. Is that the Valentino That's story? That's the Valentino oh, story. I might as well just say, I mean, I've been doing Armani for years and I was going to Milan to shoot, you know, to do some of his campaigns over there. And I would do it out of my little, two apartments in 22nd Street. One was on the third floor. One was on the ninth floor. I lived in the ninth floor and I took the elevator down to the third floor, which was just a studio where we did literally mechanicals where you had to cut out the mechanical, put the type down. It was all done there. And then you'd bring the finished mechanical to the, um, I brought them to Armani, for instance. And I was at Armani for about 10 years and Saint Laurent probably for about the same amount of time. And really, it was so fantastic to work for them. I mean, I just, you know, Marina Schiano was at Saint Laurent mm-hmm. in those days. And she brought me in and a guy named Didier Grumbach, who was in Paris, and then um, Gabriella Forte, I was flying to the collections, I remember, from interview. I don't know how I got into first class, but somehow I was in a first class seat going to the collections. And I was walking into the bathroom or something in between business, and this little girl walked up to me and she said, Hi, she said, I know who you are. I'd like you to work on our ad campaigns. And I said, Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, honey. I said, What company are you with? And she said, Giorgio Armani. <laughs> This little company, tiny. She's so, and I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea to me. (laughs) I said, let's talk when we land. And that was it. They hired me and I was there for years. And at one point I was doing uh, Carl Lagerfeld's ads and Barney's and all this stuff. I remember that people from Valentino, who I also knew, had called me up to do their campaign. And I said, oh, sounds okay to me. I said, but you know, I better call Armani people. And I talked to Gabriella, and Gabriella said, that is a fantastic idea that you're going to do, Valentino. She said, that's so exciting for you. I said, thank you, Gabriella. She said, of course, you'll never work for Armani again. (laughs) (laughs) That's the punchline. That's the best, because she's so, I mean, congratulating you. In that voice of hers, if you know that voice. And she said, I went like. You'll never work for us again. Click. 
And so I uh, had to call Valentino, people, Kaka, and I said, I'm sorry, they're just not going to let me do it. And I think they were really furious because, of course, everyone thinks they're the most amazing. Of course. And um, that was that. So that was that business. That's amazing. Tell us about this photo wall. So we're sitting. Okay, so you said your ceilings are 22 feet. Well, okay. in this room, yeah. In this room. So this wall, this photo wall is 22 feet high, and I'm bad at estimation, but looks like 22 feet wide. Oh, yeah. It's around that. So it's probably, you have pictures. It's of- pictures. I have so many more pictures in this. First of all, that wall is corkboard. I had a guy come in or several guys come in and put corkboard up into the second floor in the spare bedroom there and then painted it to look like um, it was the wall. So oh, wow. I could just take out pictures and put on pictures at will. It was not a big deal. But those pic- I have thousands more pictures. And when I was a kid in Rome and in London and in Paris, I always had my camera with me and uh, my little Super 8 camera. Did you take these pictures? Um, yeah. I think I took almost all those pictures. Wow. Oh, you know what? No one's ever asked me that. I don't think in all the years I'm here. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things I didn't take, but 95% of those are pictures I took with people. I mean, that was the whole point. I mean, you can do a whole show with this wall. I know. Plus, there's like, I have a basement that has, you know, is filled with photographs and I have more boxes of pictures and slides, tons of slides of, you know, life in London. And uh, the first photographer I worked with was Helmut Newton, mm-hmm. and I was his translator. <laughs> small, small photographer. Well, I didn't know then. I was an architecture student in Rome. And uh, Tina, I'd met Tina in New York, and she called me up and she said, look, we're doing a photo session. We want to do this actress named Dalila Di Lazaro, who is a friend of mine. She's a beautiful, beautiful girl. And she was a, kind of a big name in Rome at the time, and I was hanging out with her and some other people. Uh, and they said, Dalia doesn't speak any English, and I speak Italian. So she said, we want to hire you as the translator, <laughs> and you'll translate for Helmet. So I traveled with him to the south of France, I think in, into England. I think we did something in England with this actress, at least one actress, Dalila. And there's pictures of me and her on that wall. And um, I went, oh, my God, what's this world? You, you know? know what? I have a really great idea for you as I'm sitting here, <laughs> I will tell you. Because you have a really superb memory. Like you remember dates, places, names. Like seriously, Mark, you really do. I think you should do a coffee table book with like a hundred of these images and tell the story of what happened that night. Oh, that would be funny. I am kind of writing. I have about 70 pages done on oh. about my family and about working with celebrities. I'm doing Andy, but not... With Andy, I'm doing the photo sessions that we did with Cher and Aretha and Mick Jagger and all these people that I got to have these hilarious stories with. And then into the fashion business, the drug-infused days of Studio 54 and photographing all over the world with Chris Van Wagenheim and Arthur Elgort and all these people. I was at Arthur's studio yesterday. He signed his book because I'm giving it to Bruce Weber for Christmas. Well, he's the reason I'm in fashion. Who? Arthur. Because I bought his book, Models Manual, in high school. And no, but for real, I bought it in high school. It was sort of like my ticket to fashion. I didn't know fashion was a job. I took it to college where I was pre-med in college. Where'd you go? I went to University of Maryland. And I was neurobiology and physiology major. But I was like hardcore fashion girl at heart. And I had this book to prove it, right? This was my coffee table book. Oh, how great. And then one day in college, junior year, I just decided – I want to be in that world. And I had been older now when I realized those mastheads in magazines mean something. Those are jobs. Yeah. 
so Arthur's book, I credit that. And interestingly, like a few years ago, when I was looking for a photographer for a campaign that I was working on, I hired his daughter, Sophie. Oh, yeah. She's wonderful. She's wonderful. And and it hit me. I'm like, wow, this is so full circle. So Well, I went to Arthur's studio yesterday. He has one of the great studios in Manhattan. He has a huge, huge loft that he works in with big, like those windows in Paris with a, uh, on the slant on the side. I can't remember what they're called, like atelier windows. And <laughs> um, just amazing yeah, I mean, Arthur was uh, and is a really great photographer, and he's a great teacher also, and I love him very much. We had hilarious stories around the world. If you know him, he's one of the funniest people. Really? Oh, my God. He is so funny and so talented, and he taught me so much to look at a woman's wrists and ankles when you're photographing them, when you're looking for models, you know, the face and whatever. She said, but if they don't have the wrists or the ankles, don't take the picture. So I always... Wait, what does that mean? What are you have to have a certain, you know, just a certain look to your is it physiology, just how you hold your hands. Arthur loves ballet. That's an Arthur Elgor picture up there. I see in it. The ballet. I see it. And actually, that picture is of me in the silver frame mm-hmm. next to the piranha. Arthur took that of me when I first came to New York. Amazing. I modeled for like five minutes in Milan. And when I came back to New York, he took some pictures of me. Um, so when are you going to finish this book? Oh, hon, I don't know. You know what you need to do? This is what you need to do. Uh-oh. You need to get our friend Lisa Marsh. <gasps> to edit it, to look at it. That's such to a just, good idea. To just listen to your stories and record. Oh. Well, I had like, I sent some to Fran Leibowitz. Oh, to, that's, a sh- that's a good option also. Yeah, that is a good and option. Fran thought they were funny and that kind of, but that was years ago and I sent them to her. And it takes me a long time because... Um, doing other stuff and then sit down and then bang out some story about something that happened. And But it uh, could be a collection of essays. Yeah. And it's very funny because you t- said that I have a good memory. I have a horrible memory, actually. I don't believe it. And people make fun of me for my how I don't remember things. But, you know, when I was a kid, I uh, my parents started me on sleeping pills. And I take sleeping pills for my entire life. Why? Because you couldn't sleep? Because I couldn't sleep and they wanted to quiet me down. <laughs> So I just, I got on these pills and I never got off. Wow. So in all the years of here and in Europe and stuff, and I think it's pretty damaging. What is your, I mean, you've had so many amazing moments, but what do you think is like the greatest career moment for you? You know, when I met Derek Jarman in London, he was introduced to me by someone as the Andy Warhol of not knowing I was going to be Andy Warhol's art director. Oh, that's interesting. It was Yeah. He said, oh, you're going to meet, you should go and meet this guy named Derek Jarman. He's known as the Andy Warhol of, of London. And I finally got to meet him like two days before I was going to leave London forever. And um, we spent the day. He had been the art director for Ken Russell. He did The Devils and he did um, a bunch of movies and he was a great painter and he said, well, I want to start making movies. I said, oh, I said, well, my, I just make my Super 8 movies. But he said, well, let's do one together. And that's how he started being a director. Wow. Is with my mother's camera and me in the back of where I was living, an old jigsaw factory in Downham Road in, uh, in Hackney. And Derek really, I, when I left Derek, I took the tube back to Islington to my wonderful little house with parquet floor and really nice furnishings. And I asked everyone to come into the living room of the house. And I said, listen, my life has changed. I can feel it. And I'm just telling you that it's going to take a whole other direction. 
And what made you feel that way? He's just, you didn't know, I mean, you wouldn't know Derek, he's long gone, but he was an amazing person and there was an amazing connection. And I came back to Connecticut. I sold my stereo to my brother and I sold whatever I could. And then I flew back to London and uh, he did. He changed my life. That's I mean, all so this, amazing. the pre to Rome, everything else came out of London. So he's really your mentor. He really was my mentor. There's an architect also at RISD named Raymond Abraham, who's also on the wall, who passed away in a horrible car accident. Mm. He was at RISD and he saw what I was doing and where my mind was going because I didn't never wanted to build a building. That wasn't in my scheme of things. It was just a way to live and to express myself, I guess, or whatever. What do you think makes a great campaign? Like Oh, an ad campaign? Yeah. I think, you know, a compelling image makes a great campaign. You know, don't you look at Instagram and look, oh my God, look at this image, this incredible, even if it's just, I was never interested in fashion. I was interested in fashion photography. So I was interested in making the woman look incredible in that outfit and getting the right team to make an amazing, and there's so many incredible photographers now doing that. It's just mind-boggling when you look at people. What excites you most about the future? Well, I guess for me personally, working in augmented reality is really where everything is going to go. What got you interested in that? I don't know. I just... Just all of a sudden one day? I saw, I don't know. I mean, augmented reality, it just seemed like... It seemed like the future to me. It seemed I mean, it certainly I, is. Yeah, as opposed to virtual reality, which is taking yourself out of the world. I wanted to adapt the world. And the reason I'm doing it in fashion and retail is because it's the world I know. You know, if I'd been a car salesman, I'd be doing it with cars or something, but I'm not. So those are the people I'm talking to and seeing if they're into. It's happening whether I do it or 12 other people do it, but this is where it's going to go. What's your creative process? You know, I don't have a creative process. I really don't. It's like you can ask, you just sit down and something comes to you and then you have to do it because otherwise you're just thinking of something, which is lovely, but then you can do that in Vermont, I guess. Are you decisive? I'm pretty decisive. Anyone who knows me (laughs) knows I'm pretty decisive. That's what I want. No, I don't want that. I think it's good just in general in your life to be a great editor You learn that as you get older, you get hopefully to be a better editor and you don't make the same mistakes. You know, um, it's worked for me. How do you want to leave your mark? What's on your tombstone? Oh, good God. I know. Wish you were here is probably going to be on my tombstone. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. Mark, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Your stories are incredible. I cannot wait to buy your book. You need to oh, you need to work a little faster. I do have to work a little bit faster. Thank you. A little faster. You. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalickt. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.